Barrett, a round of applause for leading us in worship this morning. Appreciate it, brother. Thanks for leading us in worship. Man, I felt like I was taken to church with all these hymns, and so uh, I appreciated it. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Curtis. I'm the associate pastor here at the church. Honored to be preaching to you this morning. Pastor Chris, he is gone preaching in Idaho and uh, land of the free, home of the brave is what I think they call Idaho. So he's over there right now uh, preaching at a church, and then we've got some other people as well that serve this Sunday that, uh, that are on vacation. And so honored that you would be here, honored that you would join us this Sunday. A few things, church, that are coming up. Next Sunday, we're not here at the church. Next Sunday, we're doing Church in the Park at North Cove. I encourage you to be there. It's going to be in Lake Stevens, starting at 10 a.m., same regular time. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have a church service. We're going to have baptisms. We're going to have barbecue. So if you can be there for that, I'd encourage you to do so. It's going to be a lot of fun. As well as, for those of you that are getting baptized um, um, at the church at the park next week, we're having a meeting about baptism right after service. We're going to have that over in the great room. So if you're going to be getting baptized or you want to consider getting baptized, then gather back there and we can talk about that. And we're just going to talk about a few things about what baptism is and isn't. All right, hey, if you've got a Bible, 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, we're continuing second to the last week in our sermon series, Abide, Life in Christ, Life with Christ. And just a quick recap for us, a couple weeks ago, I got the opportunity to preach on abiding in love, and we're going to be continuing that theme today, but we're going to be looking at it in a, a little bit of a different angle. This week is week 11, we're talking about abiding in eternity. And here's the recap for you. John, the, the apostle, he's an older man. He's a grandpa. He is communicating to a group of churches, and he refers to them as little children. He's the spiritual father of these churches. He is the planter of these churches, and they look to him for wisdom and guidance. And he is calling these churches, and he's calling a church like ours to abide in the love of God. He's saying this, I don't want you just to know God's love and then move on. No, rather you are to meditate on the great love that God has for you. That means you read about God's love. You pray about God's love. You sing about God's love. You thank God for God's love. Uh, Isn't it true, church, that in order for you to have a deep relationship with Jesus, you don't need to know deeper truths about God? Really what it is that you just need to believe simple truths more deeply. And something like the love of God is a simple truth. It is something that can be comprehended. And so he's saying this, this great love that God has for you and I is meant to compel us to go on to love one another. This is a a perfect love, a life-changing love. And as we meditate on this, this is going to be the thing that transforms our lives And Lord willing, will spill out of this building, out of the walls, and change our communities, and even change the world. History is a testament to that fact. That when the people of God are consumed by the love of God, that societies change. This is what happens. This is already happening, and it needs to continue to happen. So like I said, if you've got a Bible, 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, we're going to be looking at our whole section of Scripture, and then we'll break it up throughout the text. He says this, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment that we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is God's word. Few things we're going to be looking at today, church. Three points. Point number one is this perfect love casts out fear. You probably saw it, but in the first few verses that we were looking at, John he makes reference to the day of judgment. And what is that day? This is a theme that is throughout Scripture, so let me just give you a few different places to help describe what this day of judgment is, what John's talking about. Uh, in the book of Romans, Paul says that it is a day. Uh, that is filled with wrath. Jude, he calls this day the judgment of the great day. The Apostle Paul, when he's preaching a sermon in Acts, he says it's a day that is fixed on which God will judge the world in righteousness. There's another place where Paul calls this a day of wrath and fury. It is a a sobering day is what it's supposed to be. This is a day at the end of human history, at the end of the world, where all of humanity is going to be gathered up before the throne room of God, before Jesus. And it's not just the bad that are going to be judged, but also, quote, the good as well. This is the highest court that there is. I want you to think about it like this, church. This is the supreme court of the universe, There's no escape for judgment day for any of us. Injustice will not prevail. Paroles will not be given. Appeals will not work. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein isn't getting out of this one. Bill Gates can't pay his way out of this. This is what's being said. The same author, the Apostle John, he wrote another book. He wrote the book of Revelation. And in that book, he's actually having a vision of that last day and what that's going to look like. We'll go ahead and take a look at it. It's on the screen. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. That's to communicate this, church. It's not just the average pedestrian that's standing before God, but it's also the greats. The rulers of the world, they're also standing before them. And they're on the same level playing field as the average pedestrian. And there's one person who's on the throne, and it's Jesus. It says this, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Here's what John's doing, church. And we're not going to unpack all of that. There's a lot of imagery and a lot that we could unpack from there. But here's what John's doing for us. He's wanting us to cast our vision, not just to our present lives, but forward to that great day that we're all going to be a part of. He's wanting us to look forward to that day, that judgment day. And he's saying, church, for that judgment day, I want you to have confidence. I want you to have confidence. Have you ever been to court before? You don't need to raise your hands. I know you're a bunch of heathens. Have you ever been to court before? Did you ever have confidence when you went to court? It's unsettling, isn't it? You get into the room and there's one person who's in control of the whole room. There's one person who has the sole authority to bind or loose people. It's unsettling. I remember years ago, uh, one of my friends uh, who had been struggling with addiction with heroin in and out, he'd been to jail multiple times from stealing a lot of different things, and he asked if I could drive him to court. And so I drove him to court one morning, and we went, and it's my friend, his attorney, the judge, and myself. And it's terrifying. I'm like, I, I, I thought I was innocent when I showed up. I still think I'm innocent. But he's just staring at you. He's like, what are you, what are you doing here? Why are you here? It's like, I don't know. I don't even know why I'm here. And anyways, he goes on and he talks to my friend and he's giving him the list of things that he's done wrong and he's guilty of. And he said, I could book you for this. I could book you for this. You deserve this, but I'm going to give you mercy. And he says, let's make a plan for you to get out of addiction so you could do sobriety. And so they make that plan. My friend saying, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We leave. We get in my car and we drive away. And my friend says, he's just bluffing. To this day, my friend, sadly, is still addicted. He didn't take those words seriously. John is saying here, God's not bluffing. This judgment day is, is meant to sober us up. So do you have confidence for that day, church? John is saying not only yes, but you can. You can have confidence for that day. You can have confidence because God loves you. That Jesus Christ loved you so much that he took that judgment that you and I deserve on the cross for us so that we may go free, so that our names might be written in the book of life. And this Mercy Fellowship is the day that determines all of our other days of our existence. This is what I believe John is trying to say to us. Because this is a day that is either going to, deter, this is going to determine for us whether we spend an eternity with Jesus and the other saints who have believed in Jesus, or we're going to spend an eternity apart from Jesus in hell. It is so incredibly significant that we know and have some certainty of what this day looks like for us. So when you get to that courtroom, church, what's that day going to be like for you? Is it going to be a day for you where you're giving God your resume? God, look at what I did. Look at what I tried to do. I tried to be a good person. I wasn't Hitler, and he's the worst. I'm better than him. Or are you going to point to the cross? Say, all my righteousness is there. Are you going to say, as the old hymn, Rock of Ages, says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to that cross I cling. The only hope, the only confidence, church, that you and I could possibly have on that great judgment day is the righteousness of Jesus given to us. This is the good news that we have. Let me give you, church, the difference between good advice and good news. Good advice is this. Hey, work hard 
plan, prepare for that day, do the right things, don't do the bad things. But church, you don't have any confidence in good advice. There's no confidence, there's no certainty that comes from that. Good news, however, announces to us this, what's already been done. It's concrete, it's complete, it's finished. You can have certainty with good news. And a simple response for you and for me is this. Do you believe it? Do you believe this to be true? We are a people, Mercy Fellowship, who are saved by good news, not good, good advice. This is good news. Our eternity has been set for us. Praise God for that. But more than that, though, church, there's, this is why it continues to be good news. Some of you in this church, you have been treated unjustly. And some of you in this church, you have been exploited. And what's being communicated to us about this day is this. All wrongs are going to be made right on that great judgment day. This is the day where Jesus takes out his vengeance and he repays for the evil that's been done. There's going to be people who thought they could get away with things. And they're going to be found. They're going to be tried. They will be found guilty and they will face the consequences for their actions. As Christians, this judgment day that comes, it decides all other days of our existence. And my hope for you, church, would be this. It would lead you to rejoice. It would lead you to celebrate. That you would thank God that God took my judgment so that I could go free. I am one who deserves such judgment, and yet God has spared me because of his son, Jesus. Praise be to God for that. You can celebrate today, church, by not eating any vegetables getting a big steak and having a good drink, right? Celebrate, rejoice, thank God. John says this, if we don't have confidence, the result is this, we're gonna live in fear. That's what he says, verse 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love is meant to cast out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The future confidence that is meant to save us from present fear of punishment, right? There's a fear that comes with the uncertainty of the future, isn't there? An uncertainty of what will happen, what might happen, where I'm going to go. But if we really do believe that that future has been already determined by Jesus, that it's already set by Jesus, then you can have an assurance that, hey, whatever you're going to face, ultimately, it's going to be okay, Reading through the commentaries this week to get ready for this Sunday, one of the commentators, Warren Worsby, he says this, if people are afraid, it is because of something in the past that haunts them, or something in the present that upsets them, or something in the future that they feel threatens them, or it may be a combination of all three. A believer in Jesus Christ does not have to fear the past, present, or future, for he has experienced the love of God. And this love is being perfected in him day by day. I want to ask you, church, how would you live your life differently if you knew that you were never going to die? Right? Not recklessly, not with reckless abandonment, but how would you live differently? What kind of confidence would you have? What kind of, what kind of risks in life would you take? What kind of boldness would you then go out to and things to tackle? I believe what John's saying to us is this, that we can overcome this world, as we already read, and we'll read it later on. We can overcome this world, and we can have confidence in this world 
Because the truth for us is this. Jesus has died in our place. Eternity has been set. You will not face death because death has been covered for you by the blood of Jesus. Do you have confidence for that day? I hope you do. You can have confidence for that day and all the days of your life because of the great love that God has for you. So the first point is this. Perfect love drives out fear. The second point is this. Perfect love also drives out hatred. Look at these verses on the screen. Verses 19 uh, through chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Uh, For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment that we have from him, whoever loves God must, must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. We have a reactionary faith, church. I just want to start with that premise, because that's what I believe John's saying here. And it rings true throughout the Christian life, doesn't it? That God has initiated a relationship with you, and what you do is you respond to his initiation. And it works out its way like this. Uh, We serve as Christians because God has first served us. We give of our times and our talents and our treasures because God has first given to us. And John is making that same claim here. Hey, we love and we love one another. Why? Well, because God has first loved us. If God has so loved us, therefore, we need to love one another. So John is saying this. God has paid an incredible price for us to love one another. And because of that, the result is this, that you are meant to love one another at such costs. It's a really popular thing today, church, for documentaries and podcasts to come out about how broken the church is, right? How messed up the church is. Uh, Well, what I love hearing, though, is stories about how the church has been a blessing, what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a blessing. It's supposed to be a pillar of truth within its communities. It's supposed to bring about human flourishing. That's what the church is supposed to do. And I love hearing stories from you within the church about how the church has blessed you. I've certainly experienced this in my life. I hope that you have uh, even here at Mercy Fellowship as well. Just two stories that come to my mind. Uh, Some of you know my dad died when I was younger, and so the church responded to saying, hey, to my mom, Cheryl, we're going to cover your bills uh, until you get back up on your feet. And they covered my mom and my family's bills for 11 years until uh, uh, before my mom got remarried. Huge sacrifice that the church makes. A huge cost that church made. The people that perhaps even sacrificed vacations so that my family could continue to pay for bills and live in the same house and have food on the table. Things I'm sure I probably don't even know the extent that they did until one day in in glory. I praise God for that. Another story I think of that comes to mind. Uh, I youth pastored at a church in Bothell for a couple years, and there was a guy there uh, who struggled with addiction, and he was kind of in and out, and it was hard to be around. And anyways, he said that he was moving away because he found a a girl that he was going to marry, and she lived in California, so he was getting rid of everything he had. And he had a nice truck, and he, uh, there was a couple in the church that said, hey, can we buy your truck from you? And he said, yeah, for sure. And so they went ahead and they gave him the money, and he said, hey, go ahead, I'll, give me the money, and I'll go ahead and I'll just clean the car up for you, and I'll give it to you. And so he took their money, and then he sold his truck to someone else, so he doubled down on the price, 
And then he left for town to California, and he fishhooked this couple that was in the church. And the irony of all ironies is this, that he inevitably got fishhooked when he went to California because the girl actually wasn't even a real person that he was going to marry. And so he ends up coming back to the church with his truck, and he actually showed up to the church, walks up to this couple, and asks for their forgiveness. And they forgave him. That's ridiculous. Would you forgive him? Oh, man. Oh, yeah, I won't even tell you what I, how I feel. Church, he, uh, he ended up getting forgiven. And he, the, the love of God was seen there in that situation of how he was loved. Now, I get it, right? Loving people is hard. It can be difficult. Uh, one of the commentaries I was looking at, though, from a guy named Matthew Henry, and he says this, Shall we refuse to love those whom our eternal God has loved? Are, are you really going to say, God, you got this one wrong? You shouldn't have loved this one. He is all together. She is all together. Unlovable. Unloving. Can't love this person. Right? Are we really going to look at a brother or sister whom Jesus loved so much and died for and hate them? John is saying there's a category for such people like this. And the category is this. They're liars. They're not of the truth. Right? It's the same thing that, that street preachers do. That when they communicate the grace and love of God from a megaphone while they're yelling at people how much God loves them. It doesn't work. You can't do that. Are we really going to love God and then be unloving to others, telling others that we worship a God of love? I, this is a huge problem I see within Christian culture and even just kind of American and even uh, North American culture at large, I would say. But it's packaged differently. People would say, hey, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. But it's the same thing. It's packaged the same way. I love Jesus, but I hate my brother or sister whom Jesus died for. Why is this happening? I think there's two categories of people for why this is happening. First one's this. It is for those who've been hurt in the church. Right? This is a legitimate reason for why people don't feel compelled to love others. They've been hurt within the church. They put themselves out there in the church community only to be rejected by people within the church, right? Perhaps that's some of you that are coming in here. You, you were involved in a church. You wanted to be a part of it. You got involved, and they hurt you. Perhaps they even used some sins that you shared, and they weaponized that against you, Right? The call for us, however, is this, church. If you love God, then you must love your sibling in Christ, right? And let me just say this, too. When it comes to loving someone, uh, there is the aspect and, and something that you have to admit that, hey, you have to be vulnerable in order to love someone. You have to actually risk being hurt in order to love someone, and when we look at Jesus, we get a clear picture of what this love is. Jesus, in his love for us, became vulnerable. So much so that he was naked on the cross. Not only that, he was hurt. He was betrayed by his closest friends. And he endured all of this because of the great love that he has for us. 
So brother and sister, I encourage you with this. If you're worried about being hurt, my challenge to you, as long as the Apostle John is this, be reminded of the great love that God has for you. And as you meditate on that, and as you abide in that, let that be the engine that stirs you to love people who are sometimes hard to love and who have hurt you. Number two is this. It is for those who don't like being corrected, people who say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, right? We love things that don't correct us or tell us that we're wrong. Obviously, right, church? Obviously, we don't like this. You know, when I was first learning how to preach, and I'm still learning how to preach. When I was first learning how to preach, though, I would have people come and correct me, and I hated it. It was a kick to my ego. But do you know what? It caused me to grow. You being corrected causes you to grow. This is the idea, church, of pruning. You know this, right? You prune things back for better growth to take place. It's the same thing. Ruth and I, we bought a house a couple years ago, and it was, wasn't well kept at all. The backyard looked like a bombed out area from World War II. It was horrific. And so I was clearing these trees out, and I paid a guy to grind the stumps down. And then just this year, one of our trees that's 30 feet tall is, has apples growing on it. Didn't even know that it had apples on it from last year because it didn't show any until this year. And it's just, one, it's just one trunk that goes all the way up. It's a huge embarrassment to the whole community. It's the worst looking tree in the world. That tree needs to be pruned. It should have been pruned long before. And because it wasn't pruned, if I try to prune it, I might, there's a possibility I might lose it. Church, being corrected is a good thing. You want people in your life that can speak into it. It's not a good thing for you to be isolated, to be far away from people, to not let people know who you are. My challenge to you, if you feel this way, you don't like being corrected, would be this. Do you only love a Jesus that agrees with and affirms everything you do? Or do you love and submit yourself to the real Jesus who loved us and called us to love one another? We worship a Jesus, church, that corrects us. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says he even disciplines us for our good because that shows that we are legitimate children of God. Uh, he doesn't discipline people who aren't a part of the family of God. So John's trying to tell us this. The real, resurrected Jesus commands us to love one another because we can't love Jesus and hate our brother. It's impossible. And he goes even beyond that to where that's impossible. He goes on to say this in 1 John 4.20. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Isn't that wild? When I read this, that's not how I would have communicated it. I would communicate it like this, and probably you would too. Well, God's easy to love. He's perfect. And, and humans and people, well, they're hard to love. They're full of sin. That's not what John says. John says, hey, if you don't love your brother, you cannot love God. Because God, you see. Uh, you, you don't see. Humans who are right in front of you, you do see. What's he saying by this? He's saying this. You, can, you should love your siblings in Christ because they're right in front of you. They're right in front of you, right? You've had multiple opportunities to love your brother or sister every time you see them. Furthermore, though, church, we believe this. Everyone's an image bearer of God. Every human being is an image bearer of God. 
which means this. You have God, the image of God, right in front of you to love, to serve, to care for. It is as if God himself is right in front of you. And the question is this, will you take the opportunity to love him? Getting ready for this week, I was surprised by this. Jesus, he takes this theme of loving people and serving people, as well as the day of judgment, and he kind of packages it all together. I want to show you this. Matthew chapter 25, it's a longer section of scripture, but he says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give you a drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. John is saying this. We are lying to ourselves if we could say we love God, but we don't love the brothers and sisters whom Jesus died for. And it's a call for us to examine our lives by John saying, hey, do you really love God? Do you really trust Jesus? 1 John 5, 1 says this, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. So perfect love, it drives out fear, that's number one. Perfect love, it drives out hatred, number two. Uh, number three, our final one, perfect love makes us overcomers. Verses two and five, John says this, by this we know that we love the children of God when we lo love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The love of God, as we've been talking about, is meant to compel us to live differently. That's what he's saying here. Uh, we don't live in fear of eternity because that's been secured for us. We don't live in hatred of our brother and sisters because of uh, God so loved us, we love one another. And the result then is that John's saying, because of these things, therefore, church, you are overcomers in this world. 
If I was to ask you a question, how would you describe your Christian life? Would you say that you are an overcomer in this world? Would you go on to say, no, actually, my Christian life is marked more by defeat, right? Here in the Pacific Northwest, it's hard to be a Christian, so my Christian life is marked by defeat and defeat, right? The, the soundtrack for your Christian life is the SNL character, Debbie Downer. You guys know who that is? Debbie Downer, anytime she would say something, it would be womp, womp, right? Every time your Christian life and you fail, womp, womp, right? Is that how you would describe yourself? Would you describe your Christian life as one of overcoming? How do you view your walk with Jesus? Here's a few different categories, church, for I believe how people describe or live their Christian life. Uh, The first view I would give is this. I got three points. The first view is this, the rapture view, okay? I didn't know what else to call it, so if you don't like it, email Pastor Chris. He loves receiving emails. The rapture view. People who tend to believe in the rapture tend to believe, not all of them, but tend to believe that the world is continuing to get worse and worse and worse. And as it decays, eventually Jesus is going to come back and take us out of this world and bring us to heaven so that we won't have to deal with the corruption down here. Does that sound like overcoming the world? I would submit to you, no. I don't believe it is. It doesn't sound like it to me. The unspoken motto for this view I say, is just hide and wait. That's what it is. Uh, While I was doing construction, I first got started in it, there was one summer day we were painting a house in Bothell, and the guy there, he really believed in this view. He's a single guy, older guy. He had all the Left Behind series books. It's kind of that same idea, all in the same area. It's a summer day. We show up to his house. All of the blinds are completely closed in his house. He's got blackout shades inside his house. It is pitch black in there. I used a flashlight to go use the restroom in his house because I couldn't see anything. Eventually, we were painting his house, and we needed to get power, so we ran it through one of the rooms downstairs to open the window. And you go downstairs, and he has rooms that are chock full of canned goods. It's like, well, George, why do you have this? And he has it because when the rapture takes place and he's taken away, his family, who doesn't believe in Jesus will have food supplies to make it through the seven years of the tribulation. Once again, church, I submit to you, I do not believe that is overcoming the world. Now, let me say this. I already said it. Not everyone who holds this view acts this way, okay? Uh, One of my favorite preachers of all time, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he held this view, and he did a lot of good in the world. I am personally indebted to this man, Martin Lloyd-Jones. But I have two problems with this view. The first problem I have is this. This view of the rapture, it didn't originate until the 1800s by a man named John Nelson Darby. And I'm always weary when stuff like that works its way into the church, and then you find out, oh, it's only a couple hundred years old. And for 1,800 years, no one held to that view or the apostles. So I'm weary of stuff like that. But my second problem I have with this, and my primary problem I have with this view, is this. This idea comes in that we're not overcomers in this world, but rather... We're defeated. Like, you really got to wrestle with this, church. Do you really believe that the time that Jesus gave us the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'm giving you the Holy Spirit to empower you to do this work, and by the time that Jesus comes back, it's just defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat. I would disagree with that. I think history would say otherwise. You look at Rome, you go visit Rome, a beautiful place, but you go visit a pile of rocks that once was great. They seek to destroy the church, but the church, the church continues to grow. 
The church continues to grow all across the globe. The church continues to grow even in the worst of places. We, church, are overcomers, and this problem I have with this view of just hide and wait makes us that we are defeated. So first view is the rapture view. Second view is this antinomian view. Antinomian, it just means anti-law. Another way of saying it is anti-command. And these are the people who overemphasize the grace of God so much to where it doesn't really matter how you live. It doesn't really matter if you pray. It doesn't really matter if you read your Bible. It doesn't really matter what you do in life because it's all under grace. So the attitude is this. Just coast through life because it doesn't matter. Does this sound like overcoming the world? I would say no, once again. We already read it, but the Apostle John has been saying throughout this whole letter that we've been looking at, hey, if what you profess doesn't line up with how you live or act, then you seriously have to question whether you are a follower of Jesus, because how you act is the evidence that you belong to God, and what you say is true. The ditch of anti-commands, anti-law, does not help us overcome the world, but rather, just like the rapture view, admits defeat. So if you've got antinomian on this side, anti-law on this side, the other ditch is legalism. It is all about you. Legalism's motto is this. It all depends on me. It all depends on me, right? This is the idea that, hey, if you're going to be an overcomer in the world, then you need to obey everything perfectly. You need to love people perfectly. And if you don't love people perfectly... Well, they're probably not a Christian, and it's your fault. You didn't do your part. This is the legalistic view. Did any of you guys grow up in a church like that? Did any of that, you have that burden on your shoulders, perhaps even coming in today? This is not what John has for us. How do we overcome? Not by legalism, not by antinomian, not by the rapture view. What I don't like about the legalistic view, church, is this. What's baked into it is a big inflated view of man where he's like pseudo-omniscient and he's all in control. And then God's just kind of small and passive off to the side. And you're just kind of waiting. He's just waiting for humans to get their act together before he can intervene. So how would you describe your Christian life? Are you an overcomer? Are you defeated? I want us, in light of what we just talked about, to reread the section of Scripture that John just gave to us, okay? It'll be up on the screen again. Look at it. He says this, For this is the love of God, okay? Love of God, grace of God, okay? God initiated in your life. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. That sounds pretty legalistic. That sounds like Paul's going all law, like it's all on your shoulders. But what does he say? And His commandments are not burdensome. Praise God for that. Not burdensome. It's not resting on your shoulders. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. We're not running off. We're not hiding. We're overcoming the world by our faith in God. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Mercy Fellowship, I think a good practice for you and me would be this. Work as if it depends on you, and then sleep as if it depends on God. Work as if it depends on you. Work hard. Work with all your might. Work as if you're working unto the Lord, and then when you go to, re- uh, go to bed at night and you put your head on the pillow, rest. It's all in God's control. Psalm uh, chapter 8, verse 4, I believe it is. 
He says, In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. God's in control, and you can rest in that. How do you overcome the world? By being born of God and placing our faith in Him and being possessed by His perfect love that God has for us. All right. Are you skeptical about overcoming the world? Perhaps you look at the world, you look at the place we live, and you say, hey, it doesn't look like we're overcoming the world. It looks like we're, we're falling behind. It actually looks like we are defeated, Curtis, regardless of what you say. It looks like we are defeated. Let me encourage you with this, and I'll be concluding with this. You can overcome. John, the same author of this book, he wrote the Gospel of John, the good news of who Jesus is. And he starts off with saying this about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4 and 5, church. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Mercy Fellowship, I want you to overcome this world. I want us to overcome this world by our faith. I desire this for all of us. Our Lord Jesus said to you and to me, hey, hey, in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome it. And he's inviting you and me to be a part of overcoming this world by our faith. I want you to be the best Christian you could possibly be. You might say, well, Curtis, that sounds legalistic. Well, what, you want to be the worst Christian you could possibly be? Like, you want to be mediocre? The world needs the best Christian you could possibly be. By your faith, living in, abiding in the love of God and loving others. And this, Mercy Fellowship, is how your life changes and how my life changes. This is how the world is transformed, is by the love of God. This is why all of our churches are marked with crosses. This is why we celebrate in the second communion. Jesus so loved you that his body was broken and his blood was shed so that you might have new life in him. If you believe that, church, I'm going to pray for us. You can grab your kids from Mercy Fellowship, I mean from uh, Mercy Kids, and then come back and take communion. Celebrate that God so loves you. If you have yet to be baptized, next Sunday, make a public profession that God has so loved me that I want to identify in that love by making a public profession of faith. Let's pray this morning, church. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day you've given to us. God, you're so good to us, and you're so good for us. And I think about this love, Father, that you have for us. I pray that it would go from our minds to our hearts. I pray, God, that we would be changed and transformed by this love. What you desire of us, God, and being overcomers of this world by our faith, I pray that we would step into that, that we would live in that, uh, live in that place, that we are overcomers in this world. Father, for those who are living in fear this morning, I pray that their fear would be exchanged for confidence because, Jesus, you have paid it all, and all to you we owe. The work has been done. It is all complete. And God, may we respond to your good news by celebrating and rejoicing in you. We pray this in your great name, Jesus. Amen.